Hello and welcome to episode six of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast, and I'm your host George Grimwood. In this, the third and final instalment of our review of an episode of the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson from November the ninth, nineteen seventy-two, I am joined by Gary Roger from the Sitcom Club podcast, in which we discuss the last few segments of the show, focusing on Rob Reiner and Dr. David Rubin. The next guest, although once again we don't see their entrance, is Rob Reiner, who at this point was twenty-five years old. And comes onto the show to promote the record, the LP, of him narrating Peter and the Wolf, presumably with the music playing as he tells the story. The only other audiobook, as such, that I found online of Rob Reiner providing narration was an abridged version of The Princess Bride, which obviously he directed in the 80s and uh, was written by William Goldman. But in regards to actually promoting products on the shows, in terms of when the guests come on and they either have an album or a film or book to promote. Gary, what's your thoughts on Carson's role in that? I mean, later on in the episode, we see a missed opportunity to promote Dr. Dave Rubin's new book, for example. Yeah, I, I mean, in the examples that we saw in this particular episode, the promotion of the items seems rather more blatant than we're perhaps used to in British chat shows. And the whole business, for example, of having the item on the desk and then simply just holding up to camera to say, there, you've got your shot, there it is, you know what it looks like, and so on. It's sort of perfunctory. It's almost like it's, it's sort of accepted in the same way as the live or as live commercials with Ed are an accepted part of the show. Whereas I think at this particular time, if somebody was on, I mean, obviously, Slightly different arrangement in Britain because, of course, if you're on the BBC, you're not really supposed to be plucking the stuff, so they can't be overt about it. But you know how these things work, and so they will sort of bring it into the conversation, hopefully subtly. And then, of course, people become wise to this. Then you hear people say, oh, they only appear on these damn chat shows when they've got someone to plug and what have you. Eventually, it becomes a gag, like when Frank Skinner was doing his shows around about sort of early 2000s and what have you, when somebody would then interject with whatever it was that they were plugging, he'd actually have a oversized 13-amp plug appear, come down from the ceiling, as to say, plug. Things are different nowadays, of course, because now we seem to have gone beyond the point where it's now, ho-ho, they're plugging the product, and it's now just sort of accepted. I think we've got to the point now where Carson was... 40 years ago, where you know the person's coming on and they've got something to sell and that's why they're there. That's why you've suddenly got all the pythons on a show together. They're not there just because they fancy turning up for a nice wee chat. You know they've got something to plug. And, of course, nowadays you have a slightly different situation in the UK that you didn't have before but you did occasionally see this in American shows and Australian shows quite often with the Australian soaps. So you have product placement allowed and we're still in this area where it has to be sort of very carefully handled and it has to be very obviously advertised. So when you see the letter P appear Sesame Street style at the beginning of a program, that means there is going to be product placement in this program. And it's something which doesn't necessarily require the viewer to be directed to it. It's not like Carson holding up book or record or whatever it may be. It's just going to be something that's there, it's present, it's visible. And... It's interesting, lady, and how we've sort of gone through in different 
years, different decades, how we've gone through from, first of all, this supposedly being done as sort of a covert thing, to then it being more overt, then it's ironic, supposedly, and now it's just accepted. It's interesting to see on this particular episode as well, Joan Rivers, she has got a book coming out. She says at the time in about six months, but it ends up being over a year or so. But essentially her plug, as it were, for this episode was her touring dates. You have the Bee Gees, new album coming out, their 10th album, which is for the most part promoted by the fact that they perform songs from it. You have Rob Reiner, who, although the album is there and Johnny holds it up, he also talks about his acting gig with All in the Family and the fact that the next two episodes are written by himself and Phil Mishkin, which we'll get back to shortly. And then you have Dr. David Rubin, who is promoting his latest book, having already gained a name for himself with everything you've always wanted to know about sex but was afraid to ask. Although, amusingly, Johnny Carson does miss the opportunity to actually plug the book in question. He picks it up just as the credits roll and misses the opportunity, which I think they both kind of jest about. So, yeah, it, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, where it's a very relaxed atmosphere. It, the promotion essentially becomes secondary. It's still important, but it becomes secondary to casual conversation and anecdotes. And I think that's certainly beneficial because it puts aside the... This is just an advertisement element to it and brings forth the personas as opposed to, ah, well, you know, here he is to promote a new album, here he is to promote a new book, here she is to go on tour, and gives it a whole new angle. And in terms of Rob Reiner, although he's in theory there to promote the album, there's not a huge amount to say necessarily on a late night talk show in 1972 about Peter and the Wolf. So they more or less go straight into the anecdotes, which, as it turns out, certainly in retrospect, relate to the forthcoming episodes of All in the Family at the time. I'm just interject at this point because I think that's an interesting area that you've hit upon. I don't think it's necessarily that there isn't a lot to say about Peter and the Wolf. I think that if that was the structure of the interview, if that's what had been arranged beforehand, and they'd said to Rob Reiner, we're going to have you on specifically to talk about this recording of Peter and Wolf that you've done, then he would do so. I mean, he'd have all like the sort of the blurb, the preparation from the promotion company and so on, and he'd go on and he'd talk about as much as they wanted him to talk about it. You know, I recorded it here. Had you, you know, Were you familiar with the story beforehand? And what did you try and add to the story? What did you yourself try and bring to the story with your with your voice, with your uh, vocal talents and so on? And, and are you hoping to do more of these kind of things? And so on and so on and so on. The thing is that you've got this balance that needs to be struck. The promo company, the reason that Rob Reiner's on the program is to plug that album. But the Carson people know that when you see the listing of that evening and you see Rob Reiner's name, automatically you're going to think, oh, that's Rob Reiner from TV's All in the Family. And if he then goes on and doesn't mention All in the Family at all and just starts talking about this other product that he's got, then you could potentially lose interest. So you've got to strike this balance as a producer between giving the product that they want to plug sufficient airtime, maybe have a couple of perfunctory questions about it initially, and then you get it out of the way done that bit now and now we're actually going to talk about the stuff that we wanted to talk about in the first place so you see it all the time when you know you get you know just come up with a hypothetical you get person x and they're famous for say say they're like a sketch comedian and they're famous for one particular sketch in particular and it's the one they always get asked about again and again and again 
and now they've decided to branch out and they're going to become a serious offer, for example. Unless the program happens to be something like, you know, the South Bank show or something like that. If it's going to be something like the One Show, they're going to come along and they're going to say, oh, Person X, uh, we know you from this, but I believe that you've, you've now uh, gone off on a new venture. Yes, I've written this book and they'll chat about the book as for as little possible time as they can. And then they're going to go back to talking about what it is that that person's known for, because that's the audience's expectations. That's what they're, you know, that that's what the audience wants from that performer. They, you know, they want what they're used to. So... It doesn't really surprise. I think. I think. Yeah. If they'd asked Rob Ryder just to talk about Peter and the Wolf, he could have done it, of course. But probably would have been a sort of stilted conversation. I would have looked more like the kind of interviews that you see when, like, a film star's got a film to promote. The kind of interviews that turn up in, you know, like promotional puff pieces. You know, the kind of like assembled clip shows. I mean, we don't have it anymore, but things like movies, games, and videos, things like that. The kind of interviews that would turn up in there. They're going to be very direct and to the point. I am here to talk about this and nothing else, and there you are. And, of course, if you're a chat show booker and a producer, that's really not what you want. Although I wouldn't deny that there's certainly things to talk about with Peter and the Wolf, I would say that probably within that atmosphere, and as you say, with Rob Reiner as well in in particular, it probably wouldn't have necessarily suited the mood or the tone of the late-night talk show, or specifically the Tonight Show. In contrast to, say, Dr. David Rubin, where it's a more broad dialogue, perhaps, about sexuality and so forth, whereas with Peter and the Wolf, it's a particular cultural artifact to get your teeth into and perhaps is a little bit niche to cover. Whereas, of course, All in the Family, third season, and although he wasn't necessarily on there to promote All in the Family, the next two episodes that were to air after this evening, November the 9th, 1972, were both co-written by Rob Reiner and alongside Phil Mishkin. Now, Rob Reiner and Phil Mishkin had only written one episode previously in season one, which was a flashback episode as to when Archie met Mike, a.k.a. Rob Reiner's character. The two episodes that air after this Tonight Show episode aired are a two-parter written by Reiner and Mishkin, and are also flashback episodes in which we see the wedding of Mike to Gloria. So in terms of what we know now, where Rob Reiner really more or less got involved with everything further down the line, directing, producing, charitable causes and so forth, it's interesting to see that evolution take place, especially when one considers that these were actually the last two episodes that Rob Reiner was involved in writing for All in the Family. In fact, the character of Mike was meant to star in a spin-off in 1982 with Sally Struthers called Gloria, which was going to be about them and their son. But Rob Reiner declined, and they tailed off this long-standing character who'd been on air for, or would have been on air at this point for 10 years or so, by writing him out of the proposed idea. And the implication is, is that he's run off with another woman and Mike and Gloria are actually going through a bitter divorce, and he never actually appears in the spin-off. And of course, at this point, Rob Reiner, 1982, this is entering into... He's already had some directing experience at this point, but he's leading towards This Is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me. So I do find it quite strange that a beloved character as such, because of declining his involvement, is, is written out in such a derogatory way. I don't want to turn this into the sitcom club all of a sudden, but 
yes, it is an interesting area that you sometimes have characters written out in convoluted circumstances because an actor has declined to appear in another series. So quite often, a particular character will suddenly go to Australia. That's always a good one. Because it means that they can then pretend to speak to them on the telephone very occasionally, but otherwise they're not there and that explains their absence. And yeah, if if it's gone badly and there's been harsh falling out between parties, then you can have a situation where, okay, well, the worst possible situation of all would be, for example, the way that Isaac Hayes was written out of South Park, for example. And in the case of Rob Reiner declining the spin-off, I mean, as you say, he had other irons in the fire by this point, so I'm not so sure that he was necessarily overly worried about his position in All in the Family. But there was a case a few years earlier of a spin-off not only not really working, but also having an effect on the people who were in it. And that was that the characters of the Ropers, uh, who we know in the UK as George and Mildred, were given their own spin-off series from... Freeze Company, which would require them to be written out of Freeze Company. And one of the characters, one of the actors was in favour, the album wasn't, and took some convincing, and they said to them, look, if the series does not work, then we'll get you back into Freeze Company. And what happened is that there was one series of the Ropers, and then a second series of the Ropers, which was then cancelled, but as per the agreement, because it had gone beyond one series, then their window of opportunity to get back into the main series had closed. And of course then there was somebody else installed in the main show which ran for about five years. So it is always a risk when a spin-off is put to you that you want to make sure that if it doesn't work out that you're guaranteed your spot in the main show because if they write you out in such a way that it doesn't leave any way for you to come back then, well, you're, you're snookered. But then, you know, if you follow the uh, the sort of the, the Dallas or Dynasty route, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you were smashed into smithereens by a bulldozer, then you could just come back anyway. It was all a dream. Well, yeah, and it's not to say, of course, that the atmosphere was tense or indeed bitter between Rob Reiner declining and the writers going, let's write him out. I mean, to be fair, in episodes of All in the Family, towards the end of its run, before the various spin-offs, they were not series regulars, Sally Struthers or Rob Reiner. So the two episodes in which we saw them last together were Christmas episodes, if I'm not mistaken, or holiday episodes. And the heavy implication was that their marriage is in trouble at this point. So in that respect, it did have a natural progression towards that. And it made sense, but it just seems bleak, perhaps, I suppose, for that era. But then again, that's what All in the Family was about. It covered all real life issues in a humorous way, as a good sitcom should. Yeah, as you say, as far as the actual show itself is concerned, it's not an absurd situation to suddenly come up with. It would be if it was something more sort of twee, if it was more sort of, uh, you know, if it was maybe like one of your sort of 1950s, 1960s stereotypical American sitcoms. And everything, I mean, the worst thing that ever happens is that the main character's boss is going to come round for dinner and, oh, you know, we haven't got any clean napkins or something like that. And then suddenly if that character is then revealed to be an adulterer and is scarpered, it does somewhat change the tone a little bit. And I suppose it was part and parcel of All in the Family and other shows that Norman Lear was involved in in some capacity, which all have that element of this is real life, this is how it works, divorce happens, people die, people are born, etc., and 
it works. It does work. And just to touch momentarily on the Australia reference you made there, it's also interesting that you have the likes of Archie Bunker's counterpart, Alf Garnet, going to Australia as part of the series, in the same way that John Inman goes off to Australia in Are You Being Served in Australia? That's something that we will no doubt talk about more extensively one day on the other podcast, which is hosted by yourself, The Sitcom Club. Well, it's happened many times, of course. You've had the Doctor series, Robin Nidwell and Jeffrey Davis go off to Australia. You had Jack Smethurst sort of reprising his role in Love My Neighbour in Australia. And you had Patrick Cargill, who went down under for Follow Dear Father as well. So, yeah, it's quite a common thing, particularly late 1970s. It's quite a common situation where the Australian networks are used to showing British shows. And when the British show comes to an end, then the Australian network's quite keen for the shows continue, so they then transplant the character over there. And it has happened the other way as well. There are some cases of, say, soap operas made in Australia which have ceased production for Australian TV, but they're kept going for international sales because it proved popular elsewhere. And in regards to All in the Family as a sitcom, and in terms of Rob Reiner's involvement in the writing, it's about experience, we can only assume at this point, because... This flashback episode that comes up after November the 9th, 1972, is focusing on the wedding. And that's what Johnny Carson and Rob Reiner talk about, is Rob Reiner's wedding, which took place in Hollywood, in Carl Reiner's garden, in April of 1971, to Penny Marshall. And Martin Landau, at the wedding, told a story, a fairy tale story, about how Rob Reiner and Penny Marshall had met. And I read in an article from The Dispatch in July 1971 that... There was a comment that appeared to be relatable to his character of Mike. He has a single suit in which he was married. Just that was a nice touch. And the fact that they'd moved to a San Fernando ranch-style home. But there's not a huge amount for them to really cover. I didn't find there was much I could extract out of a huge amount of interest in the interview. It didn't extend much beyond the wedding day anecdote. And they talk about their pets as well. Rob Reiner says how they have two cats, Rhoda and Howie, and Carson mentions his dog sucking his paw. Then it more or less just cuts to another advert, which covers Revlon's super-rich eyeshadow and Scott's liquid gold. In that order. In that order. And I have nothing really to say about either of those. What is is Scott's liquid gold? Even though I've seen the advert, but it's obviously not made much of an impression on me. What is Scott's liquid gold? It's for the occasions that you need to have gold made out of liquid. No. I would assume that those occasions are few and, if I may say so, far between. Not in 1972. <laughs> Disco was upon them. There was a lot of gold needed eventually. I really don't know. I have no idea what one would use liquid gold for on an extensive level to deserve a advertising slot. Maybe because it was near Christmas, perhaps, and it was about having decoration. Right. That's all I can really assume. But presumably these were small little jars, I and mean, they weren't like enormous big vats. I don't think they were sort of paint cans. No. No. No, it wasn't like a five kilogram drum or anything like that. It wasn't a toxic waste oil drum size. I don't think that Johnny Carson would be associated with anything like that. No. Then again, I don't really picture Johnny Carson running around spraying liquid gold everywhere. <laughs> you realise that's the first time and probably the last that that sentence will ever be said. <laughs> In the world. <laughs> Next up, we have Dr. David R. Rubin author of Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, published in 1969. And he's on there to promote his new book, Any Woman Can. Of course, it was in the same year, in 1972, that 
everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask was also a film directed by Woody Allen. And Woody is only referenced once in this interview by Rob Reiner, quoting Woody on his views on sex. But it's interesting that in this interview you have Johnny Carson and Dr. David Rubin bonding over the criticism they've both received on separate occasions from one female journalist, Betty Rollin. In the November 1972 edition of Playboy, there's an article by Betty Rollin titled What Dr. Rubin Doesn't Know About Sex. And in 1966, Betty Rollin wrote an article for Look magazine titled Johnny Carson, the Prince of Chit Chat is a Loner. And it's interesting to note that Carson brings this up almost immediately into the conversation and has a letter from the AMA on hand to prove to the audience at home and indeed in the studio that Dr. David Rubin is a credited psychiatrist. The AMA approve, and that's because in the Playboy article, Rollin discredits him. And what are your views on Carson perhaps using this opportunity to bite back at his critics, specifically Betty Rollin? I think that it's a natural place for him to respond to the article because it would be strange if he was to respond by, say, giving an interview to another journalist and another publication. It's also perhaps an expectation from the people who have read the article that he will respond to it and he will respond to it on his show. It doesn't do the show any harm, of course, because then it potentially boosts ratings as well. The danger is that the number of people who've read the article is probably going to be a lot less than the number of people who are going to see Johnny Carson on that show on that evening. And so by referencing it, he's then giving it publicity. And it may cause then other people to go and seek it out. But yeah, he's perfectly entitled to his right of reply. And if he thinks he's been misrepresented in that article, then you'd expect him to respond. And that tag, the loner, I mean, it's it's usually used in a pejorative sense. And it might just mean, I mean, you you could also rephrase that and say, he minds his own business and doesn't make a pain in the arse of himself. Uh, and then it would come across positive, but of course it's all down to the, the sort of the spin that they want to put on it. And it does sort of fit the tired, cliched, by implying loner, then you start thinking, you know, oh, is he actually, is he happy, or is he the sad clown, and what have you. And really, as we know, I mean, Johnny Carson just had his own interests, and he wasn't necessarily somebody who needed to be out partying every evening and he was also happy when it came to his retirement to pretty much leave show business behind and he had other things that he wanted to do with his friends and family so you know good luck to him but yeah no it makes perfect sense that he would respond to it in the way that he does and I think he actually in this instance I think he does it in, in a rather polite way because he corrects the bits and pieces and to do with the doctor of course he then says you know this piece has been written and it's made this statement this is untrue because there's your certificate and so on but he doesn't get into any kind of personal denigration against the journalist herself or against the publications so he handles it in a pretty straight way well he does say something along the lines of i don't believe betty rollin likes men which is quite to the point Mm, yeah then again i find the idea that you have these two men on this talk show bonding over criticism they've received from one female journalist as an interesting aspect, especially since this is the last interview of the show. There's also a little bit more raciness to it, perhaps. You have Ruben casually knocking Nixon, who was, of course, re-elected two days previously, and Rob Reiner quoting Woody Allen by saying, is sex dirty only if you're doing it right? 
<laughs> so tongues are a little loose at this point in the evening. Although I would point out, I found it quite interesting that Louise Lassa, who starred in Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, was afraid to ask the Woody Allen film as opposed to the book, would of course later down the line star in the Norman Lear produced Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman in 1976 to 1977. So you've got this nice little Norman Lear connection with Rob Reiner with All in the Family and everything you always wanted to know about sex but was afraid to ask Louise Lassa, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Of course, that's a connection one can only put together after the fact, but I found it quite nice. So then we go into another advert, and it's cling-free anti-static spray. Of course, there's a lot of fabrics involved around the holiday periods, apparently. And then you get this strange one where it's Maxim Coffee, and it's Patricia Neal, who won the Oscar for Best Actress in 1963 for her role in HUD. And this is at the end of her career, more or less. It's not like she was doing much at the time. So it's an unusual choice, but it's an understandable choice and perhaps almost cliche because that element of here's someone you don't see around that much now doing an advert on TV, which I guess at that point was more gimmicky than it is now. It's more, it's quite natural now to see film stars in television adverts. And in fact, Tony yesterday, Antonio Banderas advertising extra chewing gum, Mm. which did seem odd, I have to say, because there's no connection there. Whereas it might make sense that an Oscar-winning actress might like some coffee. Well, does Antonio Banderas not occasionally chew gum? Well, if he does, he could have kept it to himself. You've got to be careful with chewing gum because he can remove your fillings. I don't know how many fillings, if any, Antonio Banderas has, but you've got to watch them. And also, you've got to watch those caramel-flavoured chocolates that you get from Poundland because that removed my goat filling the other day. Yeah, you don't want to do that. There's a, there's a reason they're in Poundland, to be fair. Well, because... It's basically like eating glue with sugar in it. But good quality glue. Hmm. Did you find liquid gold in there? Well, I didn't find liquid gold in there, but I found my gold filling because that's what came out. Did you have it reinstalled? No, no, not yet, no. I mean, I'm, I'm told by the dentist that they don't actually use gold in fillings these days. It's not the end thing, but that, that was there 20 years ago. So Yeah, so maybe I'll take it down to cash converters or something like that and get whatever it's... Value is maybe 0.003 pence. Have you put it on ice? No, I think that's mainly for things like severed fingers, but I don't really think it works with fillings. But it is gold. All gold should be put on ice. Should it? Well, liquid gold. Well, okay, so you're saying if I buy this liquid gold that Johnny Carson's promoting seemingly quite a bit, that the first thing that I've got to then do is tip it out into like one of those trays where you make ice cubes and then put it into the freezer? And make a gold ice cubes. That would, that would go down well at parties. I think they'd come up better than they would go down. But surely that would turn all drinks into gold wasser. You're familiar with gold wasser, aren't you? Oh, yes. Yeah. So that would turn all drinks into gold wasser. And that's not very nice. Well, no, I don't mind gold wasser, actually. I mean, it, it's a bit sort of abrasive, but sometimes that's what you want. Although I think the gold in that is edible, whereas liquid gold is. is chemical and might kill you like um, the person in Goldfinger. Yes. Although... Word of advice, if you do use liquid gold on yourself, keep the spine free of any gold, because that's what killed the woman in Goldfinger. Top fact. So after the break, Carson talks with Dr. David Rubin about extramarital affairs. Now, it's interesting at this point, because in 1948, Carson was married to Jodie Walcott, and they got a quickie divorce in 63, and he went on to marry Joanne Copeland in 1963. They then divorced in June 1972. So at this point, he 
he's in a position to talk about divorce and infidelities were committed as far as we're aware in the first marriage second marriage it's not entirely clear but nevertheless they amicably divorced in terms of having copeland receiving a settlement of six thousand dollars per month in alimony until she remarried or until johnny's death which she received until he died in 2005 and jody walker also received from what we've been told a fair art collection that johnny had uh, procured over the years but the interesting thing is this is only a month or so after carson's tonight show 10th anniversary september the 30th 1972 where he announced at the party that he and joanna holland had been secretly married that afternoon and the great joke was that carson joked about marrying three similarly named women to avoid having to change the monogram on the towels so 1972 for carson if we look at the fact that they moved from new york to burbank you have carson divorcing and then remarrying you have the atmosphere change in general the attitude i got from the interview with joe rivers is that los angeles is far more relaxed than new york and this comes across in the los angeles shows in contrast to the New York shows of The Tonight Show. And as we come to the end of this conversation about The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, November the 9th, 1972, Gary, what are your views on how this show represents a Golden Age episode of The Tonight Show? It certainly, from what I know of The Tonight Show, it certainly seems a representative edition. You've got a nice mix of guests, as we said before. You have Joan Rivers, who starts the show with a high tempo, fast pace, and then as the show progresses, you've got sort of slightly more relaxed conversation, you've got the, the sort of the slow music from the Bee Gees, then things come back up a little bit again with Rob Reiner, and then you've got your sort of academic chap on to conclude. And everything in terms of the, the presentation, the commercials, and the monologue, and so on, it certainly seems like this is a typical episode of The Tonight Show. And it's very, very interesting, like I said right at the outset, it's very interesting to compare just how relaxed it all is in comparison to a modern day Tonight Show, for example, where it seems, I mean, it's working for him, obviously, because it's seemingly what's required, but Jimmy Fallon has to constantly grab the audience's attention at all times. And there really isn't any scope for any kind of lull or any kind of quiet part or anything like that at all. Yes, and I'm glad they chose this episode to put on the official Johnny Carson YouTube channel because, as you say, it's a relaxed atmosphere. It's It has a pace that works. It is enjoyable. It has all the aspects you need. It has a TV actor. It has a doctor. It has a comedian. It has a band. It's got all the nice elements there. It has the monologue at the beginning with banter with both Ed and Doc Severinsen. You have the Tonight Show memes such as hi and the golf putts and... Hi-o! I can't replicate the golf putt on an audio, obviously. We can do it, but you won't see it. Well, you can do it anyway if you want. I've just done it. Oh, there you go. I should have switched the webcam on for it. I'd rather you didn't. <laughs> I just feel that would take up a lot of energy and time. It would certainly take up a lot of bandwidth. Well, yes. And it would increase the size of the podcast quite significantly to have a small three-second video element in it. So, probably for the best. I wonder if anyone's done that. Sort of where it... where Because I know you can obviously incorporate clips of pictures at various chapters mm-hmm. and things like that. Yep. No time like the present. Let's do the show right here. No. Uh, <laughs> no. 
So the show ends. The piano plays them out because that's the moment they go. Oh, hang on, time's running out. We've got to wrap things up here, much like a Oscar's speech, although slightly less aggressive. And the credits roll, and that's an episode. That's the show. It's one of many that we'll be covering. And I'm thinking next time we talk about a show and have a look at all of its aspects, I think we should take a different angle. I think maybe we should go forward in time, maybe say early 90s. The world of the talk show was in a tempestuous state with Carson's departure in 92. So I think it would be in our best interest to maybe look next time at the rivals, the usurpers, the people who try to have their own talk show, not necessarily succeed for whatever reason. So in that respect, in a few episodes time, Gary and I will be embracing the Chevy Chase show. All of them. As many as we can get. I believe there are 15 of the 25 episodes in circulation. That's probably going to be enough. I'm quite giddy at the thought of (laughs) watching them. And this is going to be a three-parter like this one, except probably quite long episodes, I imagine. These will be where we look at five episodes a show out of the 15 episodes that we will have available to us. So, Gary, I suggest you go off now and prepare yourself for war, for it will be dark times ahead. It will be a battle. It will be bloody. It will not end well. I don't know. I don't know if we'll both survive. I don't know if we'll both be there at the end of the podcast. I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking f- I've heard so many different things and there's such a background and an aftermath <laughs> to the whole thing. <laughs> I'm excited about that. And unfortunately this is one of those times where I can only advise the listener in regards to the Chevy Chase show is that we will be talking about it extensively and only certain clips have appeared in certain places. If you know where to look, by all means, do try and obtain copies of the Chevy Chase show. But in the meantime, I will say, Gary, thank you very much for joining us on this epic journey into one episode of The Tonight Show from 1972. I think we covered all the bases rather well, if I don't say so myself. I think we've, I think we've covered all angles and more. Indeed. And this episode will be coming out in June. And I believe there are some interesting developments ahead for the summer for the sitcom club. Yes, indeed. At the moment, we are on our summer halls. But that does not mean that the podcast feed is dormant, because we have a succession of sitcom club spin-off podcasts at the moment. And amongst the ones that you can hear already, you can hear us discussing 321 in Game Show Club, for example. And we'll be talking about all manner of different things, everything other than sitcoms. We're going to be talking about the World Cup shortly. And we're also going to be talking about a particular genre of film, one that has been sadly forgotten. So more on that to come in the next couple of weeks. So yes, keep an eye on that. And I believe it's also going to be a... I think it's now referred to as a supercut. And what that means is basically a re-edit, but a supercut of this very show is going to feature. So it's going to be all the best bits of this show percolated down into a sort of handy snap pack sized microwavable version. Which tragically will also include the plug for this particular show that you're hearing now. (laughs) And so you may have heard some of these already, hopefully, on the sitcom club feed. This may be the last 
piece. I don't know. We will see. We'll see how the order of events occurs. But do tune in and do, of course, subscribe to the Sitcom Club. There's plenty of great shows already available, but more, many, many more to come. We've got one to record in the very near future that uh, I'm looking forward to. Gary, thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next time for the Chevy Chase Show. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our extensive review of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson from November the 9th, 1972. If you have any suggestions of any particular shows that you'd like us to have a look at, you can send us an email via admin at podnose.com. You can also send us a message via Twitter with our handle at TalkShowPodcast. And you can like our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash TalkShowPodcast. I've been your host, George Grimwood. Thanks once again to my guest, Gary Roger of the Sitcom Club podcast. And I'll be seeing you next week on another episode of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast. The Talk Show Talk Show podcast is part of the Podnose Network. Music by Ian Cummins, sound engineering by Ocho, and produced and edited by George Grimwood. Music